Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would use it this morning to show us Jesus. Lord, would you soften our hearts that we may welcome him in? Would you get glory and would your word go to work not only in us, but through us, into our city, into our world, especially in this time of such great need. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. Am I preaching now? Sorry, I couldn't remember if I was pausing or preaching. Okay. You can edit this part out. Okay. A number of years ago, my wife Kit and I took a trip to Albania, and we landed in the capital of Tirana and took a late-night microbus through the mountains up to the northern city of Peshkopi. But on the way, we stopped in this little pub to kind of get out, stretch our legs, and have a Coke and maybe a snack. And I walked into the pub with our driver, and I wasn't in there for two minutes before the driver and the bartender began to scream at each other. And this elevated, and as they were screaming at each other back and forth, they were pushing this little piece of paper across the bar, showing it to each other, elevating their voice louder and louder. And I was standing there certain that they were going to come to blows. And so I walked outside to go get someone from our group to come in and help. But before I could, I saw our driver walk out with Cokes and snacks looking completely unflustered. And when we got back in the van and got on the road, I asked him, I said, what was going on back there in that little bar? And it was almost like he had to be reminded, like, what are you talking about? And then he said, oh, that, we, we just disagreed on the price of the drinks, but, you know, we worked it all out. Well, we're looking at a passage in John this morning that some of the commentators call a sermon, but it really plays out more like a scrum, like a fight. It's an intense back and forth with a crowd of people who have pursued and are now putting the screws to Jesus. And yet, what might look to us like fighting, kind of like that pub I was in in Albania, is actually a situation where people are finally beginning to talk. Jesus has not only questions put to him, but actually he's got demands being laid upon him. And in engaging with that, with this crowd, Jesus not only explains, he does the work of excavation. And, and knowing the difference between those two things and the relationship between the two, the necessity of them, I think is really going to be critical to us in understanding this passage and what's going on. And not only critical, I think, to understanding the passage, but actually to understanding the gospel itself. To explain, of course, is to do the work of delivering the correct information. It is to present the truth that you're trying to get into someone else's understanding. And yet, necessary to Jesus conveying the truth, doing that work of explanation, is doing the work of what I'm calling excavation. Excavation, of course, involves digging. It involves breaking up the strata of wrong convictions, of a hardened worldview, of strident and misguided certainties. 
that the ground of the heart would be tilled up, that it would be softened, that it would be able to receive the truth that Jesus wants to plant in the heart. So I want to come at this passage paying attention to three layers or strata that Jesus breaks up as necessary to the work of redeeming us from our sin, seeing that he redeems us also from our seeking, our striving, and the story that we've been telling ourselves. John 6 is a passage about seeking Jesus. And this particular part of of the passage is the culmination of what has really been a heated pursuit of Jesus. It all started a little earlier in the chapter when a group of people saw Jesus heal a paralyzed man. And word spread so that soon enough there was a massive crowd that tracked Jesus and his disciples down in the desert. Uh, John says that there were 5,000 men, so maybe as many as 10,000 people went out into the countryside. And that crowd was not only large, but it was getting hungry. So Jesus asks Philip where they might get something for all of them to eat. And he says, look, a year's wages won't, buy, won't, won't be enough money to buy food for these people. But Andrew pointed out there was a little boy who had enough sense to bring his lunch. And from that lunch, Jesus multiplied food for that whole crowd with a whole lot left over. Now that miracle set off something of a riot where the crowd decided, well, let's just go ahead and crown Jesus as our king. But Jesus slips away in the mountains. He separates from the disciples who head down to the shore. They get into a boat to head across the lake to Capernaum. A storm blows in. Jesus walks on the water, gets in the boat, and then soon enough, they all hit the shore in Capernaum together. And that's where we're picking up in our passage, in Capernaum, where at least some of the people from that crowd that had been fed miraculously by Jesus had tracked him down. And when they, when they find him, they ask him, Rabbi, when did you get here? It's like asking, where on earth have you been? And fair enough. I mean, he's recently given them the slip. They know he didn't get in the boat with, with his disciples, and yet here he is. But we don't realize what a big deal that question is until Jesus answers them. And he answers them in this way. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, to say truly, truly at the beginning of a sentence is is the grammatical equivalent of grabbing someone by the lapels and saying, listen up. If you hear nothing else, hear this. So before anything else, just, just so that there's no confusion, Jesus tells them about their actual motivation in seeking him. And that, uh, that what they um, got from him is a good meal, and they are perfectly happy with that. What they actually want from him, what they're actually pursuing, Jesus says, doesn't go much beyond that. Now, I've got to admit, when I read that, I thought, now, wait a second, Jesus. They just tried to make you their king. But Jesus explains, in fact, that their seeking doesn't rise much above the level of self-seeking. They'd rather, it seems, set up a king than submit to one. They'd rather build their own kingdom than bend the knee. And there's a challenge in that statement, I think. I I think one that we rarely ask of ourselves or others when it comes to Jesus, which is, 
What are you looking for from him? What do you really want from him? So in answer to the question of where have you been, Jesus puts it right back in their court, almost like forget about where I've been. Why are you here, really? He continues in his answer by urging them not to work for food that goes bad, but for food that lasts forever unto eternal life, which he says the Son of Man will give to you. Now, they pursued him pretty hard. They've gone out to the desert because of a miraculous healing. They've crossed the lake because of a miraculous meal. And yet, he's pleading with them, don't be so easily satisfied. I've got more on offer than meals and miracles for you. So he doesn't lower the expectations. He raises them by telling them that there is an even more delicious, satisfying, and lasting meal which will leave you... Which which you'll, will leave you never hungry for more. So don't be satisfied with less than that. And furthermore, here's the good news. You don't even have to go looking for it because Jesus says the Son of Man will give it to you. Now, two things really stand out in that answer. First, he tells them not to work for food. The food Jesus has on offer isn't secured by your performance in securing it. It is food that is given away. And secondly, the person who is glad to give it away, Jesus calls the Son of Man. Now, the, this gospel is famous for its seven I am statements. That's the series we're doing now, is uh, sermons on each of those statements. But what's less known in this gospel is that there are 12 Son of Man statements, each referring to Jesus himself. And that, that phrase, Son of Man, comes from Daniel 7 where Daniel had a vision where he said, I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, that is the son of man, was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away and his kingship one that shall never be destroyed. Now, there's far too much to say about that vision for now, but the essence of it is Daniel witnessed a person who appears humble, but is actually divine. He appears as a son of man, while at the same time being endowed by God with, with that which no mere man can possess, dominion, glory, kingship forever and ever over all the peoples. That person, the Son of Man, Jesus says, the Father has set his seal, validating him as Savior. Now, this immediately prompts another question from the crowd. And, and before I get to that question, I just don't want to rush past the magnitude of what Jesus has just told them. He has, he has just told them that the one Daniel saw in a vision 600 years prior is presently relevant to the discussion. He is present among them as the heaven-sent, God-certified, God-man, ready and eager to give them eternally satisfying bread for eternal life. Now, I want you to imagine that you've just received some earth-shattering news that would change your life forever. Let's say an estate lawyer shows up at your front door unexpectedly and tells you that you are the sole heir of a massive inheritance from an unknown and distant relative. And upon hearing the news, you respond to that by saying, well, oh, you're a lawyer? 
well, you know, I've got some parking tickets I'd like you to help me with. Can you, can you do that for me? You see, there's all kinds of questions you ought to be asking on the heels of that kind of news, but not that one. You should be asking, who is this relative? How am I related to them? What does this mean for me? What kind of inheritance have I come into? Any other question is ridiculous, right? So this is a moment, this is that kind of moment, when this crowd has just been let in on massive news and their question ought to be, who is this God-validated son of man who will give us eternally satisfying bread unto eternal life? Tell us about him. But instead of all the questions they could ask and should ask, they ask this, what must we be doing to do the works of God? And that question, I think, makes its own point. Not, not just about them, but I think about everyone. And that is that at the heart of our humanity is not only this capacity, but this propensity, this tendency, this bone-deep instinctive commitment that when it comes right down to it, in order to secure what I need for this life and the life to come, it's all up to me. And the fact that we may hear the most earth-shattering news about divinely de delivered, graciously given eternal life, even from the lips of Jesus himself, doesn't deter us from, that, from making a life for ourselves. We still make a beeline to self-salvation. We're addicted to it. So Jesus' answer is as radical as it is redeeming. The work, Jesus says is this, believe. Believe in him whom God has sent. That work, if you insist on calling it a work, is, is faith, faith alone. And he, ex he explains it, he continues to excavate. In fact, in his answer to their question, he delivers three corrections to what they've just said. Three corrections to what, what must we be doing to do the works of God. First, they want to know what works must we do. And to that, Jesus says, this is the work of God. The most important work in your life, the work that secures for you eternal life, isn't something that you can do for yourself. God does it. Eternal life doesn't come by way of your rigor and working for it. It comes by way of your relationship with God. We have to turn from trusting in ourselves to trust in him. We have to stop believing in ourselves and believe in him. That's the work of the Christian life, believing in Jesus, giving up on the conviction that it's all up to me and trusting everything to him. Now, having said that, I think it's possible that we be, may be so deeply addicted to, to, to self-saving that we, we hear that if all I need is faith to secure eternal life, I'm going to need big faith, bold faith, Heroic faith, I'm going to really have to dig deep spiritually to live like that, trusting Jesus all the time. And, and that can actually feel like a harder thing than the work I had in mind to have a relationship with Jesus in the first place. So it's critical to see that Jesus never says this. He never says, this is the work you have to do. Believe in the one whom he has sent. Graciously, he changes the subject. It's not your work. It's the work of God. 
You see, God never requires more of us than he himself is willing and able to provide. The faith he requires is the same faith he's very glad to give. And that means that we can relax in our trust of him. It means we can rely on God's work in us even now that through his spirit and his word, he will give us a spirit-empowered ability to trust him even a desire to trust him. We can trust that the root of faith that he plants in the heart will produce fruit for whatever good work he calls us to do. So Jesus continues answering. He continues excavating in his explanation. They ask, what are the works we must be doing? And Jesus once again corrects corrects them and says, actually, this is the work, the work of God. They're a lot like you and me that We hear about having a relationship with God, and we begin to think, what's all the stuff I need to do? What do I need to take on? What do I need to give up? What habits need forming? What habits need breaking? What should I read? Where should I go? What can I eat and drink? What words should I say? What should I wear? Who can I be friends with? Who should I avoid? And on and on and on. But Jesus says there aren't lots of things to be done to get in right relationship with God. There's just one thing. And God does it. A relationship with God isn't established by all the things we do in order to get it. It is the singular gift of God by faith. Jesus corrects them one more time. They ask, what must we be doing? And he said that this is the work that God has done. He's done it. He has sent a Savior You see, Jesus doesn't merely answer their question. He actually upends it. The gospel doesn't merely tweak my already good impulses about how to have a relationship with God. It turns them all upside down. So we ask, what do we do? And Jesus said, God does it. And we ask, what are all the things to be done? And Jesus says, well, there's just one thing to be done. And and then we ask, well, yeah, what is the work to do? And Jesus says, well, it's actually God's work. It's, It's his work to give you faith. God doesn't do most of the saving. He, in fact, does all of it, relieving us even of the one thing that we think is up to us, giving us even the faith we need to be in relationship with him. Jesus calls himself the one God has sent for good reason, because we don't have to work our way to him. He has come to us. He's been sent to you from God. He's the one upon whom God has sent He says, set his seal. He's validated him as the son of man, as son of God, as savior. Now, at this point in our text, that does not settle the matter. The questions continue from the crowd in verse 30, and honestly, they get a little rude. They're really demands dressed up as questions. In essence, the crowd says, well, okay, Jesus. What sign or miracle will you do so that we will believe a word of what you have just said. And they go on to explain that their ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. They feasted on bread that rained down from heaven that Moses gave them. You see, they're they're making a comparison. They're comparing Moses and Jesus and saying, honestly, Jesus, you're coming up a little short in the comparison. I mean, think about it. Moses fed hundreds of thousands of people for 40 years in the desert, and you... Well, you fed lunch to a few thousand people in an afternoon. Moses gave the people heavenly bread, and you, on the other hand, doled out a bunch of barley loaves 
So if you want something so precious as our trust in you, we need to see a little Moses magic. But here's the thing. That clearly is the story they've been telling themselves. It's one that they believe. It's actually one they're very proud of. And unfortunately, it's also a story that is deeply untrue. In point of fact, raising the specter of their ancestors shows that they have a lot more in common with them than even they are willing to admit. What they're forgetting is that the generation they're so proud to descend from, certainly one that saw God do the most amazing things, raining bread from heaven, liberating them from the bondage of the most powerful nation on earth, shielding them from plagues, leading them through the Red Sea, drowning Egypt's army, guiding them with the cloud of cloud pillar by day and fire pillar by night, just to name a few things, happens to be the same generation, infamously, that went down in history as the least faithful of all. Addicted to idols, constantly complaining, always doubting, longing to be back in the bondage of their captors, being prevented because of their disobedience from entering the promised land. The same generation that saw God do the coolest stuff was the one for whom it was never enough. Their posture toward the Lord was basically, that's great, but what have you done for me lately? Prove yourself worthy of my trust. They were always putting the Lord to the test, which is exactly what this crowd is doing to Jesus right now. Give us some proof, Jesus. Show us some sign. Do something that would validate you in our estimation. We want Moses magic. And here's the thing. Making demands of the Lord, insisting that he prove his legitimacy, is tantamount to saying, you are not enough for me. But Jesus is gracious to hang in there with them, to say not only that the story you're telling yourself is false, but there's a truer story. There's a better story. Your story's worse than you're willing to admit, but God's story is far greater than you're willing to believe. So for the third time, Jesus again explains and excavates, graciously correcting, redirecting, reproving what they've said, telling them the tragic truth of the story they've been telling themselves that in fact, Moses never fed you. God did. You're wistful for the heavenly bread your ancestors ate, and by the way, we're quick to complain about. But right here, right now, the Lord is giving you better bread. Real, true bread from heaven. Manna can't compare to the Son of Man. And one more thing, you talk about how this bread was provided for your ancestors, but the bread I'm talking about is for the whole world, and not just for 40 years, but forever. And look at what Jesus has done here. He's graciously redeemed their seeking and telling them that they should, what they should be looking for, raising their expectations for a better, lasting meal that God himself provides by grace. He's graciously redeemed their striving and showing them that God does the better and more effectual work in securing salvation than your works could ever do. And he's graciously redeemed the false story they've been telling themselves, showing them that God has a better story for them, which he will write them into by faith through grace. 
And the fruit of that, the fruit of excavating that, of redeeming their seeking and their striving and their story is that it opens the way to redeem them from their sin. Look at the response in verse 34. They respond, but this time their response is radically different from anything that's come before. They've been listening to Jesus, but it's like they're hearing him for the first time now. Even the way they speak to him changes. They started off calling him rabbi, kind of the standard term for your local religious service provider, but now they call him Lord. Their questions are no longer about what they should do or what their ancestors once did, and their demands of Jesus have stopped, and all they bring to Jesus is a new desire, saying, Lord, give us this bread. They're not self-seeking anymore. They are Savior-seeking. They're asking from Jesus what only he can give. They're not talking about manna. They say, we want this bread, the bread, Jesus, that you're offering. And they say, we want it always. We want it all the time. We don't ever want it to run out. They've come to see that this is the bread that they simply cannot live without. And to that, Jesus says, in effect, good news. It's here. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus says literally, not merely, I am the bread of life. The, the actual text in the original language says, I am the bread of the life. That is to say, he is the bread. There is no other bread. Nothing else will feed you and sustain you unto life. And, and he is also the life. He is the only way to life for all human beings. He is the life for which, for which every human being longs. And what that means is whatever it is that you and I may be seeking, whatever we're striving for, whatever story we're telling ourselves, satisfaction, longingly, or lastingly, lovingly, unto eternity comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the bread of life alone. And I want to see that even as Jesus makes this bold proclamation about himself, he bolsters it with provision. He provides for us. First, he says, this bread is for anyone and everyone. It's for whoever comes to me. Whoever you are, come. Just as you are, come. Uh, got nothing to bring but your troubles? Come. Have a past? Come. Completely messed up your life? Come. Struggling with doubts? Come. There's nothing to prove. There's no pre-qualifications. As the old hymn says, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. So come. Come hungry. Come needy. Come messy. Come knowing that Jesus does all the work. Come knowing that he has come to you. And if you do come, Jesus promises no real hunger ever again. To put a bit of a finer point on it, Jesus says that he is the life for whoever is coming to him, which is to say, come by faith and never stop. The crowd actually gets this. They've asked Jesus that he would give the bread always, and the good news is it is available always. Come again and again and again, all your days. The first thing Jesus says is that those who come to him will never be hungry again, but he also says that whoever trusts in him will never thirst again, ever. 
That second part complements the first, but it's not exactly the same. It centers not so much on coming to Jesus, but trusting him, believing in him. Trusting, I think, is a simpler thing than coming. Um, You might even say it's necessary in order to come. Put your faith in him. Have the trust and then come. And, And here's the good news. Nowhere will you ever find Jesus demanding of anyone that they deeply trust, that they utterly believe in him, that they wholeheartedly rely on him, that they are completely submissive to him. He sets the bar as low as possible bringing himself as near as possible, providing everything necessary so that as many as possible would be fed unto life eternal. He demands nothing from us other than simple trust, coming to him, hungry and thirsty. He wants nothing from us other than us so that we would come to know as he redeems our frantic seeking, our furious striving, our false storytelling, that he is all we need. Trust him. Come to him. Know that he is enough for us because he is everything. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this good word. Jesus, you indeed are greater, a greater savior than we maybe have ever imagined. Would you grow in our own estimation? Would you Help us to repent of making demands of you, of seeking other gods, of striving to save ourselves. And Lord, we just rest in your graciousness, knowing that you provide everything we need for life and godliness. Help us to relax and rest and trust, because you are the great God who saves those far and near. You are the bread. May we feed upon you unto life. In Jesus' name, amen.